You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast this morning. I'm Judith and in the studio with me is Alice. Hello. Yeah, and... uh, We've got a busy show today, and we're very excited about all the different people we've spoken to. It's been fantastic over the last last week or so. Big thank you to Beyond Zero Emissions. Such a great show. Always, always enjoy that show. Time is um, just after, about one minute after seven, I think, something like that. And, um, and the weather is kind of lovely out there still. What a weekend we've had. So beautiful. Fab weekend, yeah. Yeah, so um, now later on the show, we're going to hear from people who go out to parks and neighborhoods once a month and spend an hour picking up rubbish. What did we help the ducks clean? Oh, lots and lots of rubbish. Oh, and that was Annabelle. What a cutie. Yeah, so yeah, we're here about that group. They're called Love Our Street, and a lot of them all over um, Melbourne and also in rural areas as well. So that's after eight. We'll speak with Mayor Susan Rennie from Darabin Council about their climate emergency plan, and Luke Taylor from Breakthrough, and uh, they're talking about um, climate restoration. So it'll be interesting to hear from them. Dean's interviewed Sue Bolton. Uh, and uh, she's been looking at what's happening in South Australia around energy. So lots of environmental stories this morning. And Alice, you've been exploring the idea of where Easter came from. Yeah, so we're going to be hearing a little bit from Dr. Caroline Tully a bit later. Um, Yeah, and she just goes into some more information about the history of Easter and, um, yeah, her pagan background. Wow. Well, so I mean, it should be very interesting. It will be, it will be. Uh, but first of all, we've got some music. I've been asleep too long, you know I gotta wake up. All these illusions in my head, I gotta break up. And everybody wanna say I ain't no fighter. But I'ma show them every day that I'ma rise up. And that was P Unique with Changes. Amazing artist, please check her out. It's Easter Monday, celebrated by Christians around the world, and a day off for us non-believers. So this morning, we're going to be talking to Dr. Caroline Tully about the origins of Easter. Caroline is not just a historian, but also a practicing witch and pagan priestess. So we're going to hear from Caroline about the history of Easter, links between the Christian holiday and the pagan goddess Estra, who was celebrated in the Northern Hemisphere before Christianity arrived. And Caroline's going to tell us a little bit about why some of the European imported festivals to her don't really make sense. So take it away, Dr. Caroline Tully. Okay, well, we know Easter is meant to be about the death and resurrection of Jesus, who is a 
um, Middle Eastern or a Near Eastern deity that's been adopted in Europe for centuries and centuries. I'll just give a bit of a background. Yeah, so, do. so Jesus. So the reason. Um, so that happened at around the spring. You know, Easter's around the spring equinox in the northern hemisphere, and that's because um, Jesus really was executed around that time, around the Hebrew uh, festival of Passover, which is also called Pesach, and you know. In some traditions, um, or Pesach, Passover, Pascal, the Pascal lamb. So the Christians sort of have adopted that terminology. But if we look at the Anglo-Saxons, they had um, the word Easter really comes from a goddess called Estra, and she's an Anglo-Saxon goddess, and she's a goddess of the east and of the dawn. And you might go, well, what's that got to do with Easter? Well, it's got to do with the spring equinox. So the spring equinox is like the dawn of the solar year. So if we look at the winter solstice, which is the darkest night of the year, when you know there's uh, the night is uh, much longer than the day, then after the winter solstice, the days get longer, 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 longer until the spring equinox, when days are equal and um, days and night are equal, and then after the spring equinox, um, the days become perceptibly longer up to the summer solstice, which is the longest day, and then they start to get shorter again. So the spring equinox is a bit like the dawn of the year because it's like the sunrise of the solar year. So so this goddess Erstra, she's um, got to do with the east. She might be the same type of goddess as the Hindu Ushas or the Greek Eos or the Roman Aurora. And what's really interesting about those goddesses is they're often, well, in the scholarship they're called predatory dawn goddesses. And saying predatory sounds a little bit ba- um, bad because you don't usually say with male gods who have sex with humans. <laughs> um, yeah. You don't really call them predatory. But these goddesses are called pre- the predatory dawn goddess because they often abducted um, attractive males and, and made them come and live with them uh, in a supernatural realm. But what's interesting about those particular males, they often died... And it's a little bit interesting in regards to Jesus. You know, if we look at um, Mary as some sort of goddess and then she's got this dying and rising sun and if we look at um, Eos, had a, a, she abducted a male called Tithonos and she asked Zeus to give him immortal life but she forgot to ask to give him eternal youth and so he just became older and older and older and older until he turned into a little cricket and he just was just chirping away. Wow. This, the, the dawn goddess has some sort of relationship with um, a dying and rising male figure, and you could possibly say it's the sun, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, James Fraser, who wrote The Golden Bear, he specifically linked the Christian myth with pagan myths um, to show that Christianity was just one of, um, you know, the greatest hits of ancient pagan religion. With Estra... How would people actually celebrate her? So she was mentioned by the Venerable Bede, who dates to between, you know, the late 600s and early 700s. And some scholars suggest uh, that that there's argument in in whether she really was a goddess at all. But what people, you know, may have done, sort of fertility rituals, rituals involving flowers, sex, dancing. You know, this is before TV, so people were a little bit more easily pleased. Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, so those sort of partying activities, you know, because everyone, so say it's a rural community, they're having to do lots of farming and animal husbandry, and these festivals in the year are a time to stop doing that, party on, yeah, and also loose. also to eat meat a lot, because a lot of um, people didn't eat that much meat except at festivals. And how has the modern story stripped... Um, all mention of women and women's power and fertility. 
Well, if we look at Christianity, I mean, well, Christianity is not, it's kind of anti, anti-woman, anti-sex. And Mary, of course, is the sexless great mother um, of Jesus. And, you know, she's not foregrounded in, although she's huge in Catholicism, but she's not foregrounded above Jesus. It's just as, you know, Christianity took over from pagan religions, the goddesses were, you know, um, suppressed and wiped out and Christian doctrine didn't really want to mention any goddesses. I mean, it's quite interesting that, I mean, we've even got Mary at all as a um, supernatural being because, of course, she wasn't supernatural, but she sort of, you know, she ascended bodily to heaven and she lives up there, so she must mm. be <laughs> she must be supernatural. Yeah, so it's just really a matter of... Um, Monotheist, the monotheistic religions aren't very goddess-friendly. Like Judaism used to have goddesses when it was Hebrew polytheism, but after the Hebrews were allowed to come back from captivity in Babylon, mention of goddesses and, and goddess statues, you didn't see them anymore. But before that, there's evidence of goddess worship in Hebrew religion. So it's something to do with monotheistic religion. Because, you know, God, of course is meant to be sexless, but, you know, everyone knows it's a man with a beard. And when people say God the mother, they're like, what? Well, that's a bit weird. (laughs) How will you be celebrating the equinox? Well, let me just... Now, this is where it gets into a problem because, of course, in Australia, it's not the spring equinox. No. It's the autumn equinox. So the whole thing of having Easter um, and other European imported um, festivals in Australia is problematic because pagans... Um, because our seasonal celebration is specifically about the landscape and nature, we early on, you know, notice when people start practicing, they go, hang on a minute. Um, it's not the winter solstice in December, it's the summer solstice. So pagans sort of, that's been a big thing in Australia is, you know, what do we do with the, the seasonal calendar, which is called the wheel of the year? Mm-hmm. And we've had to kind of flip it or move it around six months so it matches up because, it, you know, it's an import from the Northern Hemisphere. So it matches up with the Southern Hemisphere seasons. But with the Christian calendar, no one seems to care that it's based on the seasons and has seasonal symbolism. Um, and they just have sort of plonked it on top of the Australian landscape. So that's why we spray paint snow on the windows in um, December, in midsummer here. Um, and that's why we're having a spring equinox festival in, in, at the autumn equinox. And I, it's so annoying, but no one seems to care. They just don't care. When you say, you know, this is like, um, this is actually a spring festival. They're just like, I don't care. I'm not listening. They're not interested. Yeah. And also a lot of urban people... They're not really paying attention. They're like, oh, it's winter, I'm a bit cold. But they don't really, you know, make a big deal about it. They don't sort of just think about winter. And, yeah. oh, what festival will, is a good winter festival? So it's a big problem. Um, and that's another thing with Halloween. It's so annoying. <laughs> I just refuse to acknowledge Halloween in Australia because it's Beltane um, at that time in Australia. Bel- you know, so that's October. Yeah. That's early summer festival in reality but yeah. Australians are you know woohoo it's Halloween it's which is you know a Celtic festival of death and early winter and that was Dr Caroline Tully yeah I mean it's interesting about what happens in the southern hemisphere around these things I think of Mexico which is more Central America and mm. the day of the dead celebrations which are enormously beautiful I find the welcoming of spirits back and yeah. uh 
Yeah, so complicated and interesting. So what does one do? You know, what does one do, really? um, It is interesting. Yeah, I love the Greek myths, though. I discovered them when I was probably 11 years old, and that search for a woman among Mm. them. Mm. And uh, I remember my favorite story was the one about how Athens got its name, Yeah, which was, um, you know, Athena and Poseidon were both keen to get their names on Athens. And Poseidon, the god of the sea, apparently made a a spring. And um, the people were first very excited because they'd have water all the time, but it was salty, apparently. They tasted (laughs) it. And... uh, and uh, Athena gave them a tree and it's funny when I looked it up I didn't find this but my childhood memory of it was it was a gnarled old tree and actually it's a siege it gave them but you know I always had this image of it was a you know a kind of not terribly attractive tree kind of gnarled and kind of old and uh, people thought well you know what's that um, but then, of course, it produced olives and the oil and yeah. the food and, and, you know, how clever was Athena. So when I was a young woman looking for role models. Mm, you I found was, one in her. Yes, but I'll never look at crickets the same way, <laughs> the same way again. But then I, lo- I looked it up again, and uh, actually it's a cicada. Oh. Uh, but some people get them mixed up with crickets. I mean, yeah. you don't know the difference. But I love cicadas, yeah. so I particularly so that made that story mm. even more dear to my mm. heart. <laughs> I studied um, mythology in college. It was oh. one of the subjects that I ended up doing, and I really enjoyed it. I was absolutely hopeless at it because I forgot all the dates, and I was rubbish when it comes to timelines. But I just loved hearing about the really complicated characters behind all these gods and goddesses that lived on Mount Olympus and various different places because you just don't hear about any of that in the Christian faith with gods and saints yes. and you know they were they were so fallible both the gods and the humans yeah they I were mean. scandalous <laughs> everything that they used to get up to it was <laughs> terrible I loved it um yeah and, and, of course, here in Australia, we have that whole tradition of uh, Aboriginal spirituality, mm-hmm. which is so strong and so deep. So now we're going to hear a song from uh, Lady Lash, who's from Suduna, from the Great Australian Bight, and she's been back and meeting um, her elders and learning from them and uh, exploring her spirituality. So here we are with Organic Domes. Did you know that women's votes can change this country? This federal election, let's think about what's important to us, our families and our multicultural communities when deciding how to vote. Are you enrolled? Do you know how to vote? Visit www.harmonyvotes.org.au to find out more about why your vote is important and how to make it count. Authorised by the Harmony Alliance, Migrant and Refugee Women for Change and the National Ethnic and Multicultural Broadcasters Council. 3CR supporters. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. Now on the line we have Sue Bolton, Victorian Socialist Candidate for Wills, talking to us about the $1.52 billion interconnector power line to New South Wales, which will rely on dirty coal-fired power stations. Welcome, Sue. 
Hi, how's it going? Very well, thank you. Very well. Um, so it looks like the uh, South Australian Liberal government has turned its back on clean energy and badly needed jobs for the Port Augusta community. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what is happening there at the thermal plant in Port Augusta? Well, this thermal, solar thermal plant proposal is a result of a very long campaign by um, climate activists in Adelaide, uh, in particular um, a number of social science activists who are part of CLEAN, a key climate group in Adelaide, who linked up with the Port Augusta community because the dirty uh, coal-fired power station was doomed to be shut down and needed to be shut down and rather than replace it with another fossil fuel power station, uh, there was community support to get rid of the old fossil fuel power station and replace it with solar thermal. And so that is probably a campaign which is, has, has gone on for about 10 years now. Mm. Then the community thought they'd won the plant, uh, but unfortunately the government, uh, the South Australian government, rather than just pledging to build it themselves, they wanted to fund it through some sort of solar feed-in tariff, um, which is a very remote way of um, funding it and in partnership with private enterprise. But now private enterprise, uh, which was going to build the plant, has withdrawn from the project. So what we're saying as Victorian socialists is that the federal government should simply step in and fund the plant as a publicly owned solar thermal plant in Port Augusta, either in partnership with the state government or um, or just simply as the federal government. Uh, there's no need to wait on, uh, you know, private enterprise, on a hope and a prayer. Um, this is an uh, essential piece of um, infrastructure for the shift away from fossil fuel power. And I guess the, the project itself, as well as... Um you know, being necessary, it would be a significant boost to, to the community after the closure of the coal-fired power station there in 2016. That's right. And in fact, the community there has suffered a lot of health problems from the old coal-fired power station. And this, the idea of the solar thermal plant was to guarantee those workers' jobs in the renewable sector, in the renewable energy uh, power station uh, and the other thing with solar thermal which is really important is that you need projects like this in order to um, to power heavy industry. Um, while a lot of people are very excited and I'm excited too about the uh, numbers of uh, solar PV uh, panels on people's houses, that's not enough to run heavy industry, we mm. need baseload power to run heavy industry. And so it's not enough for the either federal or state government to say, I'll oh, leave it to the market, the market's working, people are putting uh, solar PV on their houses. That's not sufficient because we need the shift to heavy industry being run on um, solar energy. And also, we, at the moment, the various federal and state governments are very attracted to Elon Musk and his lithium batteries. And there are environmental risks with lithium batteries. We really need, uh, need to not let business people who make a profit out of this stuff 
dictate what forms of renewable energy we're going to have, mm. what forms of battery we're going to have. We need something which is environmentally sustainable, um, you know, for the planet in the long run. And based on that, why do you think that uh, the SA Liberal government is walking away from this vital piece of infrastructure? I mean, obviously, you know, putting it in the hands of big business, it then leads into the situation. I think more recently we know that with the budget they confirmed a $3.5 billion climate solutions package. But mm. as you know, coal, mine, coal mining companies alone are going to be the ones that are going to receive you know, more than $1.5 billion a year in diesel fuel subsidies over the Ford estimates, so to speak? Well, I think basically the Liberal Party, while it's under pressure from some conservative independents who recognise the need for action on climate change, I think they're now starting to try and indicate that, yes, they do support action on climate change. But in reality, the Liberal Party... Uh, represents within the Liberal Party two separate interests. So you've got um, the Liberal Party politicians who represent the interests of fossil fuel companies, Mm. so vested interests basically, and you've got Liberal Party politicians who reflect the wing of the capitalists who recognise climate change is happening and something needs to be done about it, but they don't want any of the things that need to be done about it to affect their profits. And so they want to go for various market solutions. They do not want the fastest possible action on climate change. And so I think that that's what lies behind a lot of the tensions within the Liberal Party on this issue. And uh, I think from the climate movement, from left-wing and progressive candidates in the election, but also from the climate movement, we need to insist that the public... Uh, government should not shirk responsibility but instead invest in publicly owned and publicly funded renewable energy infrastructure. That's the fastest way of dealing with uh, climate change rather than this snail's pace uh, approach to market solutions. We're speaking to Sue Bolton, Victorian Socialist candidate for Wills. Now, um, you know, the, the South Australian uh, Liberal government had announced it would spend $14 million to accelerate the Interconnector project on top of its uh, $200 million interconnection fund, which was sort of largely part of its wider energy policy ahead of the election last year. What's happened to that? Well, oh, I'm not sure what's happened to that. Um, and... I I would very much doubt the motives of the South Australian government. <laughs> they could be just filing the money away into some other budget project, mm. not necessarily climate change. But also, you know, some of the various governments, as well as some of the various corporations, try and disguise things that are not very useful as being measures to deal with climate change. We can certainly see that with the, with the federal government, mm. where, you know, it's... Um, argued it's doing something about climate change when really it's just pushing various dodgy projects which are not really going to take us uh, closer to dealing with climate change. And I'd really um, be very dubious about what the South Australian government is planning for that money. Um, And, you know, I just really think the movement, um, not just parties standing in the elections, but the movement needs to really insist that we can't leave this, um, these important issues 
for the survival of our planet, our species and all life forms on the planet in the hands of companies that have vested interests. And even if things are left in the hands of, um, you know, the renewable energy market, I mm. think it's, um, you, know, some, you know, because each company uh, has different interests, whether it's a wind, um, you know, uh, solar, a wind yeah. company or a solar company or this or that, because at the end of the day, their, their goal is profits. They're That's producing right, yeah. renewable energy from the point of view of making a profit, and they may, some of the, the people who set up these companies may be committed to renewable energy, but it means you don't end up with an integrated um, integrated system at the end of it. And then also, what we saw with the South Australian blackouts a few years ago when some of the um, power pylons toppled over in those dreadful storms and the federal government tried to say, oh, this is all a problem of renewable energy. What you saw was that the electricity market is um, is not a good way of distributing electricity. So that, for instance, during those blackouts, one of the causes of some of the blackouts was that the um, uh, there was an extra gas-fired um, power station that could have been switched on to provide power to prevent the blackouts or prevent some of the blackouts. And the um, energy market basically told the South Australian government don't turn that on um, because it would affect um, market, you know, um, profits, markets, etc. And so it means that the market's not um, distributing electricity according to what is needed by people. It's distributing it according to what's needed by the companies mm. who make money out of this system. And I think this is a massive failing. I think something so central to our survival, such as electricity, I think the same thing with water, where we've seen um, the uh, privatisation of water and water trading has led us to this disaster on the Murray-Darling. Um, you know, these sorts of things should not be uh, dealt with um, for profit. They should not be profit-making concerns. These things need to be um, social, social and environmental concerns need to be the principles upon which decisions are made regarding, um, you know, renewable energy, climate, um, you know, and the energy industry as a whole and um, with essentials like water. And I know that, um, you know, obviously uh, South Australia already has an interconnector with Victoria and this one was meant to be a power line to sort of be an interconnector to New South Wales. And, you know, from the, from the report that the South Australian government had was that it would further enhance security of supply for South Australia and diverse low-cost renewable generation sources to New South Wales. How can they, you know, walk away from this vital piece of infrastructure for the Port Augusta community and, more importantly, as well as the, the clean energy side of it? You know, it just seems, as you say, to, to leave it in the hands of big business, it seems, um, yeah, quite um, irresponsible. Well, I think that's the problem. I think you've hit the nail on the head. They're, from a common sense, from a rational point of view, this decision does not make sense. But from the point of view of particular businesses, I'm, I imagine that's what the government is basing its decision on, 
it probably it might make sense for them in terms of their profit-making capacity and, and where they want to uh, allocate their resources. But from a human and environmental perspective, this decision does not make sense. And so I, I think there's no rational basis that I've seen for the government walking away from this project, the South Australian government walking away. Um, and so I think, you know, we need to make a different decision, which is, you know, if the South Australian government's not going to build it, then the federal government should build it um, as a publicly owned uh, uh, piece of infrastructure. And I think there is a precedent for that in the sense that, yes, um, you know, the power stations might be mostly managed by state government, but, you know, the federal, there are all sorts of arrangements between different levels of government. So the federal government can step in and do this, we believe. And so how can people, um, you know, help, the, I guess, the community of Port Augusta to, to pressure the South Australian Liberal government to, to um, you know, push on through instead of waiting for big business to come in? Come in? Well, I think the, uh, what people need to do is the tried and true, <laughs> which is a protest movement which calls on uh, the state government in South Australia as well as the federal government to fund fund this, but also fund it as a publicly owned, not a not a not a subsidy to a private company, but a publicly owned enterprise. And I think it's really important that the climate movement starts to take up the idea of the energy industry being in public hands, so that we can base decisions on the social good rather than um, rather than private profits. And I think um, we need to re-energise the campaign which um, which rose, which won support from the South Australian government all of those years ago for this solar thermal project uh, in Port Augusta. And that means um, mobilising the community in Port Augusta, mobilising the unions um, that would cover the workers um, because the jobs are very important for uh, a really repressed region mm -hmm. and also mobilising the climate movement in, um, in Adelaide and also around Australia because I think this, um, you know, I think this is a sign of, um, yeah, this is a very bad sign, a very bad signal from the South Australian government, and I think the movement around Australia needs to put uh, needs to call for uh, this project to go ahead, but also other solar thermal projects to go ahead to replace coal-fired power stations and gas-fired power stations. So thank you very much for joining us on 3CR. And if people want to, uh, yeah, contact your South Australian um, counterparts to, I guess, find out more info, where can they go? Um, well, the name of the organisation um, which campaigned for a long time around this issue is called CLEAN. Now, actually, I've, because I haven't had um, contact with them for a while, I've forgotten what CLEAN, the acronym CLEAN stands for. Um, but people ought to be able to um, find them um, on Facebook, so just clean as in C-L-E-A-N. Um, it would be Climate Something Environment you know, Action mm. Network, I think. I <laughs> um, can't remember what the L stands for. Um, but people can look it up. 
on Facebook and also on the internet and um, or combination of clean action solar thermal plant Port Augusta, any combination of those sorts of words and you'll be able to make contact with that group clean which has ca- um, carried out a lot of climate campaigning in Adelaide. Fantastic, Sue. Thank you once again for joining us on 3CR. Thanks very much, Dean. And that was uh, Sue Bolton, Victorian Socialist Alliance candidate for Wilts. We'll be back in just a moment. Something Has Changed with Pira. And the lead singer there is Jess Beck, a literature woman from the Western Desert area. And the album is Animal Kingdom. Such a beautiful voice. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just 30 You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. And uh, a great conference. Some fabulous speakers uh, every year. It's a big event here in Melbourne. Luke Taylor, who we'll be hearing from shortly, Managing Director of Breakthrough, the National Centre for Climate Restoration. He's also producer and director of the film Homefront, Facing Australia's Climate Emergency, which is screened at Transitions Film Festival that was on in Melbourne just in March, just last month. 
Now, I caught up with him on the roof garden of Fitzroy Library. Now, it isn't like they're not serving cocktails. It is the Fitzroy Library, and uh, you'll hear the sounds of children and families, the background and the birds. But it's always good to know what, what those sounds are when, you, <laughs> when you're doing an interview, and certainly it was lovely to hear the birds, that's for sure. And uh, I started by asking him about Breakthrough and why it was established. Quite a number of years ago, we started a, a, a new organisation in, in Melbourne um, called Breakthrough, the National Centre for Climate Restoration. And the gap that we were really seeing uh, in climate strategy was that there was a lot of focus on adaptation strategy and there was also a lot of focus on mitigation. What do you mean by those two things? A- adaptation normally refers to adapting to the ongoing changes that climate change presents. So, so accepting what is? Accepting what is, but still doing something about it, but responding to the symptoms rather than looking at the cause. Um, mitigation, the mitigation strategy is where you start to address the problems, um, but even mitigation itself is lessening the severity of something as opposed to the third strategy which we were really interested in exploring and hence why we uh, we started the organisation Breakthrough, the National Centre for Climate Restoration and we took that restoration strategy as the central approach to the organisation as a, a leading think tank in the area exploring about what would it take to actually reverse climate change as opposed to just dealing with the consequences or just trying to lessen the severity. So a new wave of thinking around climate change, reversing climate change or what we call restoring safe climate conditions and then to look at what would be the central strategies that you would need to drive within society to be able to reverse the situation that we have at the moment. And what kind of strategies have you adopted? The investigation really starts for us as you've got to have a great handle on what the extent of the problem is. Most people think that we've got a a fairly good handle of what the situation is and and that's true on one level but on another level I think that quite often we don't account for the speed of change that is potentially going to happen, you know, the effects of climate change and how rapidly they might affect society. And also I think that you know, those social implications, the climate movement has been talking for quite some time about the ecological implications and of course that is vital that we understand that. I think it's really helpful for us to have a much more meaningful um, conversation with the community about the emergency situation that we're in if we are talking about not just the ecological but those social implications as well. And uh, speaking about the emergency situation we're in, you did, or your organisation did produce a report. What Lies Beneath is a report that was co-authored by David Spratt and Ian Dunlop, looking at the science behind the science, the, the mainstream science that's presented to us, which is fairly conservative. The UN report on climate change, was this a, a response to that? Absolutely. I mean, even one degree and two degrees, the reality is that we have to accept that they are not safe targets. Already at the one degree warming that we have in the system at the moment, we're already seeing that catastrophic for communities right now and has been for the last decade. 
So for us to talk about climate change being something as dramatic and devastating in the future, some communities are facing the reality of that right now. We're basically locking ourselves into loss. Our way of thinking in, in Breakthrough is to pull out all stops. We're looking for maximum protection and that should be the goal. We obviously advocate that all governments should be pointing straight forward in that direction to say what are the changes within society that we need to make? What are the changes to our industrial base that we need to make to be able to get to reversing or restoring safe climate conditions. You're on 3CR Monday Brekkie and I'm speaking with Luke Taylor, Managing Director of Breakthrough, the National Centre for Climate Restoration. And Breakthrough is planning three films to inform the public about their work and draw attention to the seriousness and and, uh, urgency of the issues of climate change here in Australia. The first, entitled Homefront, premiered at the Transitions Film Festival in Melbourne last month. Here's Luke Taylor again. The narrative of the film is driven by national security and military experts. How does climate change interact with security? I'm, I'm curious about this, not something I necessarily think about. Quite some time ago, there was a report done by a think tank, a military think tank in the US. It was a groundbreaking report. It basically refers to climate change as a threat multiplier, an accelerant for instability. When there's ecological breakdown, when people can't feed themselves or they don't have enough water to be able to drink and survive, the social unrest that comes from that. We've presented the case in Chapter 1, which is that we are facing emergency situation, and the question begs, of course, well, what do we do? The most rational approach is that we look at the situation as an emergency, we treat it as such, and we respond uh, in emergency speed and scale. Will you be setting out a kind of a roadmap of what needs to happen in the next film? We're definitely going to investigate, well, what, what does this restoration approach look like and what does it mean? And do you have some uh, kind of inklings of that, what that might entail? At the moment, stop doing any more warming that calls for a zero emissions approach, but it's more than that because we have a debt in the atmosphere that we also need to deal with. So we are looking at below zero approach. You obviously have a strong commitment. How do you keep your optimism? How do you keep your energy going? <laughs> you get to be surrounded by people who are actually working on uh, on the issue and I find that really inspiring. I find that very motivating. If we can get ourselves into the, into the go mode of actually really working on the problem at full scale and speed, you know, it's incredibly motivating and it's very clear to me that, that we can do this. It is possible. And it's uh, great to hear the the positive feeling from Luke Taylor, and he's the uh, Managing Director of Breakthrough, and also he's directed and produced the the film that he was discussing there. And, um, you know, talking about inspiring and exciting people who are working hard for climate change, I had the great privilege of um, speaking with Susan Rennie of Darabin Council, and the reason I was speaking with Mayor Rennie, was because Darabin has a climate emergency plan. And because we're looking a lot at the environment today in the show, I was really curious about what is this climate emergency plan? What's it all about? 
Almost the first motion of the new Darabin Council was to declare a climate emergency and that came about because we had some very active members of our community who had campaigned very hard, stressing that they expected more rigorous action on climate emergency. Absolutely an example of how concerned community members can make a big difference in relation to the actions that their local council takes. A lot of people, I think, would see a climate emergency as something to do with perhaps international activism or international action or even federal. What capacity does local government have to address the climate emergency? We know that the most effective action is going to happen on the international stage and with federal governments. But federal governments are failing us, and they're failing us all over the world, and state governments are failing, and when federal and state governments fail, there is a much greater role for cities and for local councils. And Darabin Council was the first council in the world to declare a climate emergency, but since that time, over 300 councils from around the world have followed suit. If councils continue to declare climate emergencies and take climate emergency action at the speed we're now seeing, then that will overwhelm the lack of action at state and federal government. And I think ultimately it will make it untenable for them not to act at a federal level. What countries have taken up these options? We've seen numerous local councils in Canada, um, particularly in Quebec, in the United States and in Great Britain take action and it's spreading beyond that. What kind of action can councils take at the local level that will make an impact? We're looking across a number of domains of council activity. One is through our purchasing policies and making sure that we're not purchasing anything or trying not to purchase anything that aggravates climate change. So, for example, our road resurfacing program has now switched to a product that's 95% recycled materials. If every council around the world did that, that would create a, a genuine marketplace for materials that are currently we're struggling to deal with. We're looking at energy, particularly through our solar savers program. Can you just describe that program a little bit? Darabin Council will organise and pay upfront for solar panel installations on the roofs of our residents, and the residents can pay that back over 10 years through their rates payments. So they accept an increased payment in rates over 10 years. So that's very appealing to people because there's no upfront cost to putting solar on their roofs and in fact over time there'll be significant savings and obviously that's also an amazing mitigation strategy because we know that many of our residents are vulnerable to heat stress and for those residents with lower incomes they may be reluctant to turn on air conditioners in summer and so it also means that they can actually live in greater comfort and not sort of experience the same levels of heat stress. Have you done some community education so people are aware this exists? Absolutely, and the uptake of the program has been amazing. Equally strong right across the municipalities. We've advertised in the local paper, in the council newsletter that goes out to people's homes, and I think as a result of the number of panels people are seeing installed, they're really cottoning on, and it's such a tangible and simple way that people can take action. Who are the people that would be vulnerable to climate change? We're particularly concerned about some of our older residents. Many people are in houses that are poorly insulated. We also know that when there are extreme weather events and when we saw the fires years ago, more people on those days actually died of heat stress in their homes than in bushfires. So our Solar Savers program actually prioritises people on lower incomes. I'm wondering uh, who else is on board? Who have you been able to bring with you? When I looked at who's using electricity and gas, just for example, in Darabin, about uh, 47% is used by commercial and industrial uh, groups 
and 35% by residents. So how have companies and industrial groups come along with this? We haven't been as rapid as we would hope to actually reach out to light industrial and business groups in the municipality. Many of those businesses are actually getting on board themselves because they see the business sense in acting on the climate emergency. And in fact, right across the business sector in Australia, we're seeing more convincing action than we are by governments. It's only been a couple of years, really. Do you feel there have been some achievements already? The major achievement, certainly in terms of what we're doing within our community, is reflected in the Solar Savers Program and so we're well on target to doubling solar capacity in Darabin, which is quite extraordinary. Within council and thinking about our procurement, we're very proud now to be purchasing road resurfacing material made of 95% recycled content. That's the internal stuff. And the fact that more than 300 councils around the world have followed Darabin and declared a climate emergency, I feel is quite an extraordinary achievement. And that number is growing every day and every week. And what next? What are you looking to in the next couple of years with your climate emergency plan? We want to continue the work that we're doing within council to make sure our ship is in order because there are still more council could do. We're also looking to build ambassadors to have more people within the community who can be champions, who can speak with knowledge and conviction about this issue and persuade others that genuine and rapid action is required. I hope that as a result of this movement that is growing that state and federal politicians will act much more convincingly because so far um, responses have been woeful. And we do have an election coming up and it'll be very interesting to see the results of that. It looks as though it's going to be an election where climate is the key number one issue and that's absolutely essential because at the end of the day, if we don't have a healthy planet to live on, you know, all the jobs in the world are no good on a dead planet. And that was uh, Susan Rennie, who's the mayor of Darabin Council, <laughs> well-spoken. And uh, yes, isn't it interesting that climate is, looks like it's going to be centre in this election. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, amazing to watch. And uh, also so exciting that um, local government is you know, working from the ground up to get things done. 300 around, um, around the world, that's, that's pretty exciting. Great work. Now it's Easter Monday and I'm kind of wondering, did you sleep in? And if you, I hope you did. And if you did, here's a song for you. and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. And you are on 3CR 855, and it's the Monday Breakfast Show. And uh, the track you heard just a few minutes ago was uh, Molly Johnson, a Canadian jazz singer. And, uh, yeah, sleeping in late. 
What a great thing if you can do it. And you know what? All those people have been up and not sleeping in. Well, you know, we're really, it's great to have you with us today. So, yeah, welcome and hope you're enjoying the long weekend at least. Yeah. So I ran into this group of people. I was, it was amazing. It was a group called Love Our Street and they were up in Reservoir and they were cleaning. We're going to talk, hear from them in a few minutes, but first of all, I met the person who started the whole thing. Her name is Jill Sokol. The litter that ends up on our beaches doesn't come from the ocean, and Port Phillip Bay is a very closed system. The heads uh, is a very narrow opening in the bay, so all the litter that's in Port Phillip Bay comes from metropolitan Melbourne. So we have to really raise awareness in our suburbs about how we can care for the ocean wherever we live. What I really want people to do is walk outside the door of their workplace or their gym or the shop that they're at or their home and apply a little bit of love to that local environment. So it really is very much about taking individual responsibility for your own patch that will contribute to the health of our local environment, our waterways and the ocean. Is the project funded? I started Love Our Street with a bit of support from Beach Patrol and was then lucky enough to secure a local grant. My local area is Elwood and that's part of the city of Port Phillip and they provided me with a community strengthening grant, which I thought had a really strange title. What's this about? All I want to do is pick up rubbish, but in fact, it's about creating a community to deal with a common problem. So it does strengthen the community. I've made friends who I think will be friends for life through picking up rubbish. (laughs) And how have you spread, once you set up Love Our Streets and you got the grant, How did you spread the word? I started in 2015. In 2017, there were two groups. And then I was lucky enough to secure a state government grant through the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning to fund new groups in my local catchment, which is the Elster Creek. Now, that flows pretty much from Rabin Airport right through the city of Glenira, parts of the city of Bayside and city of Port Phillip into the Elwood Canal and I wanted to really see if I could develop a catchment model. Now I had some people take up that offer when they learnt about that and started a new group in Caulfield and then a group started in Ripponlea Balaclava and I still had some money and the department was kind enough to allow me to vary that to other groups who'd heard about us. We have 12 active groups and two more will launch later in April. It's not a glamorous thing to be doing, to be picking up rubbish, but it's so rewarding to see the difference that you can make in an hour of action a month. At a federal level, there's not been a lot of action on environment and even climate change. There's been a lot of uh, concern expressed about that. Do you think that's part of people's motivation? Do they just want to do something? I certainly think that's the case. You know, lots of people say to me, why are you doing this? Isn't it the council's responsibility or isn't it the state government's responsibility? In fact, I think it's everybody's responsibility to take care for our environment in very simple actions. So where are the groups? I'm very curious about actually where they're located and especially if people listening want to join. We have groups in Elwood, Port Melbourne, 
Caulfield, Maribyrnong, Ripponlea Balaclava is one group, Harram, Darabin, Cheltenham, my overseas group, Cape Woolamai on Phillip Island, Glen Waverley, Hoppers Crossing, soon to launch Hampton and Caulfield North, and later on in the year there'll be a group formed in City of Casey. And I've also had interest from people in North Melbourne and in the Yarra Valley, from Don Valley and McMahon's Creek. I really love the idea if we can get those groups going, then we've covered from the mountains to the sea, which would be a fabulous narrative to carry our story. If people aren't able to join one of our groups, they can use our Litter Stopper app, which is available on iPhones and Android platforms, to enter their own litter collection data. So I'd really encourage people to do that because the more data points we have, the better we're able to convince government that we need action on things like a container deposit scheme in Victoria. And if people would like to become involved, they can contact us on our website and our address is loveourstreet.com.au. And I was interested and I did want to find out more about what it's like you know, just to go out and pick up rubbish. Something we can all do as well. Well, it's amazing. I, I, I mean, <laughs> lots of things are amazing, but I think it's incredible that, uh, you know, it's such, as she said, as Jill said, it's such a simple thing. Mm. And that was Jill Sokol, by the way, the person who, who set up Love Our Street. So I did. I went, I got up early. <laughs> and I, I went up to Reservoir to meet the people that were out that morning. That was a couple of weeks ago, a Sunday morning. They were all meeting at 9 o'clock, and uh, I had a great time. So here we are. Hello. You people, hi, how are you going? Hi. My name's Rose. If you just, if, probably if you take two bags each. So if we put recyclables in one bag, and then if we put rubbish in another bag. If you're going to pick up cigarette parts, if we can put them in here, that would be fantastic because we count these. So when it gets up to the top here, that's approximately 600 cigarette butts. We don't go through and count them. We've just done a bit of an average. Yep. Yeah. You know the reason why we're picking up rubbish, but the purpose to separating everything is so we can easily weigh it and count it and photograph it and then log it into our website. And that really helps with campaigning and trying to get this container deposit scheme and government to get onto having our plastics reduced for packaging. Just a bit of a safety briefing. We like people to work in pairs. If you find a syringe, just let us know. Don't pick it up. We've got a sharps container. We'll come and get it. The small pieces of rubbish are, you know, the best pieces to pick up because they're the ones that people sort of don't do. That often, you know, just get washed into the lake. How did you hear? Um, Facebook, one of the good karma sites, I think, okay. maybe. So, that's great. Thanks for coming. So what's brought you out today? Um, I'm just overwhelmed by rubbish, I think. I just I see it everywhere, everywhere I walk, everywhere I ride, and I'm just hoping that by doing just this little bit, we draw people's attention to the amount of rubbish that's out there at the moment, and hopefully we start to bring in sort of more systems that deal with our rubbish and yeah, make people aware of you know, what happens when they just throw something on the ground. How many times have you been out so far? Yeah, this group, this is my third time. I also um, help out Derebin Creek Sweepers. We are bringing people's attention to it because I don't think you see it until you start looking for it. And once you start noticing it, that's all you see.
So what are you finding? I'm surprised at the number of cigarette butts I'm finding, actually. I really thought that uh, smoking was on the decrease, but looking around here, I'm starting to wonder about that. A lot of it was on the ground for weeks and months, because I, I had a chopstick and I was digging the bottle top out of the dirt. If, you know, if it was, yeah, chopstick's good. Oh, I found two, four. <laughs> I'm a scrounger. Comparatively clean, but you still find a lot of those butts, you still find a lot of little bread tags, little drinking cups, just, oh, even chopper chop handles, just things that you always have while you're at the park or at a picnic or something like that and that just end up staying there for a while. Prima straws, heaps of them. And is that a yabby trap? Is that what it is? Would they catch things like platypus? If let's just say there were were platypus. That's why there's a band um, because they do catch things like water rats and um, and platypus because of the nature of them. And then once they're in, they can't get out. Same with turtles. So they're definitely banned. These opera house style traps. I think the the ones they use now are the drop ones where they're flat on the ground, and when you lift them up, you get the yabbies. What did we help the ducks lots, clean? Oh, lots and lots of rubbish. We found bottles, didn't we? And this fluoro string very passionate about picking up rubbish and then I wanted to get my daughter involved so she's three but it doesn't matter she can still clean <laughs> yeah. yeah a lot of what I noticed today were those um, flushable wipes or those you know kids wipes which they might be flushable but they're definitely not biodegradable any plumber will tell you not to flush them we don't want them ending up in the creek mostly I'm finding bottle tops and little bits of plastic that the mowers have chopped up so the problem is that the smaller the bits of plastic, the more likely they are to get in our waterways and the more likely they are to end up in a seabird, a turtle or a whale, unfortunately. You must have pretty sharp eyes to be spotting some of that plastic. <laughs> You've got to get the light right. It's uh, cloudy at the moment, but when the sun comes out, the little bits glitter, so it makes it a bit easier. <laughs> We're just finding a lot of little small things that lawnmowers have chewed up, a lot of lollipop lids, straws. We've just around this table here found heaps of cigarettes. Oh, so this is the picnic table here? Yeah, a lot of people sitting down having a, a cigarette and then just the butt on the ground. So it's sort of a bit of a gold mine in terms of rubbish. When we did Fairfield, I was surprised we got 40 kilograms of waste because there was so much street waste. I heard that this wasn't, uh, wasn't as bad today as it has been other days. A year ago I came down here and I, I remember it being quite bad, but they've had the kite festival recently, so I'm wondering if they've cleaned up a bit. Still, if this is not bad, it's not good. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Lots of chopper chopsticks. Yeah, you don't realise, even even us, you don't realise the packaging's changed. I think when we were growing up, chopper chopsticks were probably a paper straw, not a, yes, not a plastic bag. straw. So what we're doing is we're weighing the waste. We weigh the waste and we, it feeds into the National Liter Litter Register and then it, that will be going towards yeah, advocacy for container deposit schemes and banning of single-use plastic and so on and so forth. 11.38 kilograms of rubbish, 3.6 kilograms of recycling adds up to 15, just over 15 kilograms in total. And that's for about three quarters of an hour's work? Yes, that's right. So what we do now, Judith, is we take um, photos of the containers and we count the containers so we then have that data. This time we're going to count the straws as well. Were there any um, needles this morning? Uh, no needles, thankfully. And then that great community activism tradition 
after the work, head down either to the pub, but because it was 10 in the morning, we went to a coffee shop. I joined Ruth, Rose, and Dave, who were the people, the three people who got together to start this particular Love Our Street group. Barbara came along as well to talk about her experiences. I started by asking Ruth you know, how she got involved. Last year I was attending um, an event at the Preston Town Hall where they were showing films on plastic in the oceans and Neil Blake was talking and he was talking about all the problems with plastic and he said we need to stop it in the streets. And while I've been working with Devon Creek Sweepers for a while, I thought that's so true, we need to stop it before it hits the waterways. I thought that's it, I want to start up our streets up here. And that's where I came across Rose and David and the three of us would join together. How many people did you have there this morning? 14 people today. And how does that compare with the past? It's the most we've had in our, in our groups and we're, we're all pretty excited about that, to be honest. How do people respond when you're out just picking up the rubbish, like passers-by? Because I didn't actually capture that this morning. Responded really well. It's interesting, people will often tell us that they go out and pick rubbish up when they're walking. It's great that they share that with us and that we can acknowledge what they're doing and so that they know that, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people that feel the same way as them. The last time we did it, a fellow parked a car and he was quite smart. I can't use the word on air that I would normally use. And he, as he walked past, he said, saving the planet, are you? And I turned around and just said, well, we're giving it a go. And he walked away, but he turned back and he smiled and he softened and he said, good on you. And I thought, that's it. You, you just fold them in, you fold them in, and eventually they come on board. So I think it does make a difference about people thinking about throwing things away. So it's just good to be out there, be visible, and to hopefully rub off on other people. Slowly, hopefully, we'll see a, a change in the community's response to waste and hopefully we see a change in the government's response to waste as well. I just feel like we're inspiring others to, to make a difference. After we've done it, I always feel grateful for the people who have come and that's catching on. It's your first time finding out about this group? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yes. And what do you think about it? I haven't been able to gather my thoughts on it, but I love groups that have volunteers out uh, doing right things, uh, keeping the streets clean. Good on you. Keep up the good work. And that was the only passerby that I managed to speak to uh, a couple of weeks ago now. But uh, it was infectious just yeah. being there. What yeah. did you think? I thought that was amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of guilty of walking past rubbish on the street. I don't think about bending down, picking it up, or kind of even looking for a group like that. But I know that there's there's stuff and there's work to be done. So, yeah, I think it's incredible that there's a group like that around. And I mean, I thought the app was interesting because you don't even have to be in a group. I and mean, Jill talked about the app that you can just uh, you pick up some rubbish and you can log it. And the thing is, it's not terribly demanding. They, they only go out once once a month. Um, but, you know, they, as we've been talking about Fairfield, all the, you know, 40, 40 kilograms, he said. I, yeah, well, that's yeah, a lot. That's huge. And that would have been in three quarters of an hour. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. 
And I've certainly, I mean, I was always aware of it, but I think, I mean, I got very excited about just me. I don't get out much, you know. <laughs> but the range of things you wouldn't even think about, like, you know, the cap off a, a drink can, yeah. for example. You yeah. wouldn't think anything of throwing that around, you know. And away. those traps as well. Well, there was only one of those. That I had heard about those before. Oh, I haven't heard about those. Yeah, well, they're, they don't, they are banned. They're not supposed to be using them anymore. Yeah. But because it's just cruel. Yeah. Yeah, but there was an old one that um, I think Barbara picked it up actually and wow. came back with. So it and and it was interesting. You're very community minded. They did find um, uh, um, a young young man's uh, rucksack of sorts, and it had his name on it. And they were trying to think, you know, how can we can we post this somewhere? Let, but then when they looked at it more closely, it actually was broken. It wasn't. Yeah. So they figured that maybe someone had just that was disposed a, yeah disposed of, yeah. of the backpack. Yeah, but incredibly community minded yeah. and. Um, yeah, so, and at the cafe, as well as kind of, you know, talking about how the day had gone, the morning had gone, they also planned what they're going to do um, in their next uh, cleanup. So, so what are they going to do? Well, they're going to do it near where I live, ah. uh, just uh, sort of the border of um, Thornbury and yeah. Fairfield. So they're going to be back in that area. I think around Darabin Road, mm-hmm. and um, I'll probably join in. Yeah, I bet you will. How did you tell? You want to you get yeah. involved with the rubbish? Well, I mean, also I think it says so much about us yeah. as a society. You know, as a, I'm not an anthropologist, but if I were, I could see, I know people do study rubbish dumps. It's like middens as well, you know, mm. if you're doing archaeological work. Uh, you know, it tells everything. Yeah. And the one, you know, there was also a few coffee cups around that people just thrown away. Why do people do that? And why do we think it's okay to do that? Mm. And also just the awareness of what the things we use are actually made of, like the chop chop sticks. And also lots of ideas for activism. I mean, I think we would be writing a letter to chop chop Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I could. Or other, other things. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've got a bit of music. Now we're going to hear from, um, from Joni Mitchell. Let's yeah. We appreciate like you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this, you know, it's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of how we can, yeah. I want to be a better, better man, yeah, because of how we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 When I first come to this jail, was about 10 years ago, and I was a young one. A whole heap of young ones come off the truck there the other day, and... They call me Auntie Marlene, so it helped me recognise and realise that I pulled myself up like, yeah, they're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars.
Yeah, such a great program. Yeah, very inspiring. And there's lots of happening in Australia in community radio and prison radio. Mm-hmm. So I, I heard a um, recording that was done recently, or just in the last few months, I think, in Adelaide, the women's prison, where the the women uh, recorded um, messages for new people coming in, new women, wow. about what was going on. And then, of course, the UK has a very famous prisoner radio show. It's been going for a long time. It's won all kinds of radio awards. Quite amazing. So, um, yeah. I don't even know what that is. How oh, shameful. I'll send, you, I'll send you the link. Yeah. yeah that's pretty, oh, please that's do. pretty amazing. Mm. So and how that, was your weekend, Judith? Well, um, you know, with the weather being how it's been, it's been nothing but, but pleasurable, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got out to, um, yeah, I can't even quite remember now because I did spend a lot of time just uh, mooching around at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Yeah. It was good. I did yeah. too. I didn't even go out. I was just relaxing inside, yeah. just having a chill time. Yeah. It was awesome. Listening to some music, oh, nice. finding out some new bands. Oh, have you got, yeah, what, what bands are you enjoying in Melbourne? So I've got one band at the moment that I'm um, really enjoying and they're called Sugar Fed Leopards. So I thought we should play one of their songs. Yes, I'd love to hear it. It's called... I don't know the group. Yeah, it's called Take It Slow, Katerina. Here we go. Great song, Alice. Yeah, mm, it's one of my favourites at the moment. You just can't help but start moving when you hear them. Sugar-fed leopards, check them out. They're awesome. Yeah. 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 So a well, big thank you to all our guests today. We, we had a, a really packed show. So we heard the enthusiastic members of Love Our Street, many of them being out, and, of course, Jill Sokol, who's the founder of that group, and it just keeps growing, as she said, I think, exponentially. So it's really touched a nerve. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they were cleaning up at Edwards Lake Park and Reservoir um, when I spoke to them. And then Mayor Susan Rennie from Darabin Council, and it was really good to hear, you know, what councils can do on the ground about climate change and, uh, and that it's becoming a movement. Luke Taylor from Breakthrough talking about the films that he's hoping to make and, and to move us to, uh, you know, be lower than zero emissions. That's what he's wanting and restoration of climate. Uh, Sue Bolton, that wasn't Dean fantastic to do that interview for us. That, yeah. was, that was great. Big thank you to Dean. Yeah. Shout out to Dean. And we started with that amazing interview with Caroline Tully. Yeah. yeah Dr. Caroline Tully joined us, which was amazing. Thank you so much, Caroline. Yeah, so stay tuned now for Women on the Line and uh, enjoy the rest of your day on Easter Monday. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.